You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. In your Bibles now to Isaiah chapter number 45. Isaiah chapter number 45. We began this chapter last week, and we get to continue on with that chapter this evening. And there's a piece in this chapter that stuck out to me. And sometimes, and my phone is full of these little notes where I'm reading, I'm studying, or I'm listening to preaching, or just any number of things. I'll just hear some words or a phrase or I'll be studying and it's not, it doesn't always have to do with my message, but it's like, oh, I want to remember this, you know. I want to flesh out this thought for another time and uh, that happened today as I was studying and I guess it's something that I can still use tonight, but um, we'll get to that as we go along. We did the first eight verses of Isaiah 45 already. This is a reminder that Jehovah God is the one true God. At the end of chapter number 44, he uh, pointed out to us that he was handpicking a pagan king to be, uh, the, in a sense, a savior of his people so that they can be released back to their land. And again, I remind you that Isaiah was making this prophecy 210 years prior to Cyrus even being born. And so in the end of chapter 44, in the beginning of chapter 45, we see Isaiah prophesying, of course, by the power of God, that there was going to be a king of the Medes and the Persians by the name of Cyrus who was going to see um, the plight of Israel and allow them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and rebuild the foundation of the temple is all that it talked about there at the end of chapter 44. And that's all that was done during Cyrus's lifetime. Now, they did go on to rebuild the rest of the temple, but there was a point where they got halted for many years and didn't go any further because of uh, spiritual discouragement. In the beginning of chapter 45, we still looked at Cyrus and how God is, basically God is trying to convince His people of His sovereignty and of His power and of how He is consistently working on their behalf. Sometimes that can be a difficult thing to wrap our minds around though. You know, when we think about the prophet of God to Israel telling them, because of your wickedness and rebellion, you're going to have some tough days ahead of you. The Assyrians are going to come and they're going to sweep in like a flood all the way up to your neck, but they're not going to conquer you. But then the Babylonians are going to come along. But and they are going to conquer you and they're going to take you and carry you captive away to another land for uh, 70 years before finally you're able to, a so little bit at a time, make your way back into your homeland once more. To Israel, this might have been something worth laughing at. Okay, sure, sure, Isaiah. These Babylonians who are not an empire, of course, they're going to be great and mighty and they're going to come in and they're going to destroy us. And God is not that upset with what we're doing today. Well, our sin is not that bad, according to Israel. Our rebellion hasn't gone that far yet that God is willing to do that to us, His people. And so sometimes it's hard for us, even as Christians, to understand that some of the things that are coming into our lives, which might be difficult, are there for a purpose, for a reason. 
sometimes to cause us to turn our eyes back to the Lord. To look full in His wonderful face. Then will the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And so sometimes He will bring those things into our lives. Of course, we see what's going on in Israel today. And uh, while it is horrible, we, we also know from Scripture that these things are going to come to pass. We know that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Whether or not this is the series of battles or wars that are the end time events or it's not going to be for another hundred years, it's hard to say. I'm sure back in you know, the 1950s and 60s, um, uh, or maybe it was 1967, I think it was 67, um, the Yom Kippur War, uh, I'm sure there are many people thought back then that this was it, this is the end. You know, Israel's being attacked by uh, many of its you know, neighbors there. Uh, this is the end, and uh, it didn't turn out to be the case at that time. But we, we, what we do know is this. Whenever it occurs, God has plans. Now, we're going to get raptured. We're going to get raptured before the Antichrist is revealed. We're going to be raptured and taken away uh, before, any of these, before any of these major things in the book of Revelation occur. And then God is going to turn His attention back to Israel once more. His peculiar people that He will not forsake. He made that promise to them. He used the church for a time of people who is not a people. That's us, the church, the Gentiles. He's going to use the church for a time to make them jealous that, now, that God has, in a sense, turned His attention away from them. He's ignoring them for a time, but He will turn His attention back. And they will turn their attention back to Him one day. We read up through verse number 8 last week. But I want, again, I want to remind you, he, he refers to, God refers to Himself as Creator a lot in these chapters, and He's going to continue to do so. But he also reminded um, these, he, he's speaking directly to Cyrus here when he says, I, in verse number seven, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. He's speaking to these pagans here and he says, you have separate gods and entities, so to speak, that do these things. I'm actually the one that created them all though, Cyrus. And we ended last Wednesday night with verse 8 that says, Drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. And in this image of verse number 8, we're given the image of the waters falling down from the heavens. It reminds me a whole lot of the, the, the account of the flood. You have the waters falling down from the sky, probably for the first time in human history at that point. You also have uh, the, the earth opening up and waters coming up out of the earth and springing forth. And in other words, you have this great abundance being spoken of here, a picture that is given to us. Is this speaking of the literal natural world or is it speaking of the spiritual world here that God has control over? Well, the fact is He created and has control over both. He says, I, the Lord, have created it. Look at verse number 9. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Maker's capitalized. Let the potsherds strive with the, pot, with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work, he hath no hands. 
Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, What hast thou brought forth? And we see a very familiar comparison here. You know, is the creature going to say to his maker, What do you think you're doing? You're not really my creator. He says, woe to him that striveth with his maker. He's trying to point out something to us that it is, it is pointless since he made us. It is pointless to strive against him. He made us so that means he can break us. It's foolish to oppose him because since he made us, he knows what is best for us. It's also foolish to oppose him because we owe the greatest obligation to him, not only as our creator, but also because He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins to be our Redeemer. We owe much to Him. It would not behoove us to oppose Him in any way. I think that there might have been a problem here in some of Israel's mind. Imagine Isaiah is standing here, and he is speaking to this congregation of Israel, and even though at times it seemed like he was speaking directly to Cyrus, Remember, Cyrus wasn't going to be born for another 210 years. There, are, there is accounts by Josephus in his book Antiquities that uh, Cyrus did read this. Uh, whether or not that's true, I don't know. But remember, imagine he's speaking to an a audience or a congregation of Jewish folks, and he says, not only are all these things going to happen, but God is going to choose a pagan man to be your deliverer. What? How dare you say something? Why would not God rise up a judge from within our midst like he did in olden days in the book of Judges? Why would God not rise up or raise up a redeemer from within our midst and use a good you know, Jewish man or woman to, to redeem us, to save us? Why would God have to use a pagan king to do so? That would probably have been somewhat of an insult to them. But we see, he says here, Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Now, the potsherd, this is a shard of pottery. It is a, um, you know, you take that pot, you drop it, you break it, you're whatever, you're done with it, you don't want it anymore. Maybe you ceremonially break it. And now you've got all these potsherds around. Let the potsherds fight with the potsherds. That's, that's what we are. We're, we're shards of pottery. We're bits of clay. But can we strive with God? How silly to think that we can actually strive with God. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? You know, does the clay have any say in what is being made? The clay has no say. The clay simply has to give in to the master's will. And if the clay is not suited to what the master wants to do with it, then he will take that clay and he will cast it aside. He says, or thy work, he hath no hands. You know, the only thing more foolish than the creature resisting and opposing the creator is for the creature to say that there is no creator. It would be ridiculous for your vehicle, if you have a vehicle that you know, can talk to you, maybe you can press the OnStar button, or maybe you can access Siri or Bixby or something through it, and, and you ask, who made you? And for your vehicle to respond, nobody made me. I've always been. Okay, Tesla, you're messing with me. <laughs> no, really, who made you? Because it's obvious to us that when we look at that, the craftsmanship, the design, the planning, the fact that it works meant that there were countless people involved in the creation of that vehicle. 
How ridiculous for the creature to say, there is no creator. But that's what we do. We look at all of the order around us. We look at all of the amazingness that God has created around us. And we say that nothing created that. That no being is responsible for the initiation of any of these things that we see around us. That it is all chaos. And the problem with that is, according to the law of entropy in science, all things must de-evolve. Things only continually get worse and worse. That's the law of entropy. Every star that you see is in the process of burning itself out and dying. Everything that we see around us is in the process of degrading and getting worse and dying. Every person you see from the very second they're born is in the process of dying, of degrading. That's the law of entropy. That's science. But yet, evolution would tell us that we're getting better and better and better, which doesn't make any sense. Not scientifically speaking, anyways. Does it make sense for the creature to say, our creator, he has no hands. No hands came and made me. I was just beautiful already. You know, I was just made this amazing. I was just already this awesome without there being a creator. He says, woe unto him that saith unto his father, what begettest thou? You know, the, the begotten has no say into his existence, does he? Now, you might have opened your eyes and thought, I can't stay in this family. <laughs> Why did God put me in this family? Why did God give me this, you know, put me in this place or in this time? Why did he put me in this state? Why did he give me this body? Why did he, why did he, why did he? Why did my parents this or that? We had no say in that, do we? We had no say in our existence whatsoever. We had no say in our upbringing or the circumstances of it. We simply need to accept what we are before God and look for His redeeming, transforming power to conform us into the image of His Son. We need to accept what we are before God, rather than accusing God of making a mistake. You made a mistake with me, God. You put a female soul inside of a male body. You made a mistake, God. Does God make mistakes? Well, obviously the answer to that is no, because He is an all-powerful God. So if anybody is mistaken, it is the person who feels that God made the mistake. We need to accept what we are before God. Sometimes that also means we have to accept that we're sinners. We have to accept that there's lust and that there is temptation and that there is lies and that there is sin and that is our nature as to who we were. But we don't have to remain in that. We have to accept what we were before God. And then we have to look for His redeeming power. We have to look for that salvation, which only comes through belief, through trusting in Him, through faith, the Bible says. Only through faith. And He can come and He can transform us. He can conform us to His image. Rather than us conforming ourselves to the world, we are supposed to instead conform ourselves to the image of Jesus Christ, His Son. Are you becoming more like Jesus Christ? Think about this week in your life. Your responses to difficult frustrations, your responses to disappointments, your responses to somebody cutting you off or any number of things. Your response to people being unkind or rude to you. Have you been more like Christ this week in your responses? You don't have to answer that question. Have you been more like Christ this week 
in the words that you've said to other people beyond responses? Have you been kind? Have you been encouraging and uplifting? Have your lips uttered prayers or only woes this week? Look at verse number 11. We'll keep going here. Verse number 11 says, Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, this is Israel's Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me, look at verse 12, I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands. Remember how the, the created said, you have, don't have any hands, there was no hands that made me. He says, I'm the one. Even my hands have stretched out the heavens. Interesting thought. They say that the universe is, is expanding. And uh, that's how they can tell that there was a big bang because anytime there's an explosion, everything you know, uh, is expanding away from that particular point. Um, the problem with the Big Bang, well, many, one of many problems with the Big Bang Theory is that not every planet and moon and solar system is spinning in the same direction. It would make sense uh, if, the, if the Big Bang, the dot, you know, all the matter and energy was inside that little dot and it was spinning super duper fast because you have you know, all of the energy in the entire universe all encapsulated in one tiny thing. It exploded. Do you know what's gonna happen whenever it begins to go away from that explosion, it's going to continue spinning in the same direction. Everything is going to be spinning in that same direction. That's how it's supposed to operate. That's how science works. But not all of our solar systems are spinning in the same direction. Not all planets or moons are spinning or orbiting all in the same directions. It's all very different. Well, how is that possible, scientifically speaking? That's just how God made it. Hey, I'll admit that that takes faith. I'll admit that that's part of, of my faith in, in my, in a sense, religion and believing that God created the heaven and the earth. Will they be willing to admit their faith in evolution? I don't believe so. He says, I, even my hands have stretched out the heavens. Why does God make such a big point in these passages to say over and over and over and over again that He is the Creator? that all things exist because of Him, that they are what they are because of Him. That's just supposed to be a foundation upon which we build. And so He tells us that over and over and over again. And so we put Genesis 1-1 as a foundation. Long ago we learned that as a child, and we believe as Christians that God created the heavens and the earth, and we move on. We build on top of that, but not everyone has moved on, and we'll probably see that tonight as we keep going. He goes on to say, And I've got to find it again here. <clears throat> I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways, here referring to Cyrus. He shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. And so God emphasizes continually here his place as creator. Because God being the creator is not an option. If we remove him from his position of, of all power and of creating, then we uh, do not worship the same God of the Bible. But then he also speaks here of Cyrus, how he says, I will direct all his ways and he shall build my city and he shall let go my captives. God was going to use His power on behalf of His people to take even a pagan king Cyrus 
to do these things not for reward, he says. Not because I'm going to pay him or anybody's going to pay him. In fact, it's going to cost him to allow all these people to go back to their land, to even send with them funds, money, to be able to get these things rebuilt. He did it out of conviction from God that he must do it. You can read about that fulfillment in Ezra 1, 1 through 3. And I've, I read those verses. I don't, it might have been last Wednesday night I read those verses, so I'm not going to go back and reread them again. But Ezra 1, 1 through 3, the fulfillment of that. Look at verse 14. Thus saith the Lord, the labor, thus saith the Lord, the labor of Egypt and the merchandise of Ethiopia and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over unto thee, and they shall be thine. They shall come after thee, in chains they shall come over, and they shall fall down unto thee. They shall make supplication unto thee, saying, Surely God is in thee, and there is none else. There is no God. For verily thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also confounded, all of them. They shall go to confusion together that are makers of idols, but Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded. Nor con- Let me try that again. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. We go back and he talks here about the labor of Egypt and the merchandise of Ethiopia and of the Sabaeans. He says that all these people uh, shall come over unto thee, and they shall be thine. They shall come after thee in chains, and they shall come over. Even as Israel was led away by this forced relocation uh, of the Babylonians, one day Israel will also be supreme among the nations and is going to lead them as as the way they were led away. When is the fulfillment of this? I don't know when the fulfillment of this one is. But he says, they shall fall down unto thee and make supplication unto thee, saying, surely God is in thee. Maybe this is referring to a future time when Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, there's going to be a time where those surrounding nations around them, the ones, many of which hate them so much right now, are going to come and they're going to have to acknowledge that there must be a God in the land of Israel. However, the submission of the nations around them isn't a submission to Israel as much as it is a submission to God. And they say, verily, thou art God. But then they also say, verily, thou art a God that hideth thyself. And this is an interesting thought. Thou art a God that hideth thyself. What do they mean by that? It makes me think of 1 Timothy 1.17 where Paul says, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. So verily thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. When he sees how God, for, for many centuries, hides himself in one sense From the face of Israel, he cries out these words, overcome by emotion. Thou art a God that hidest thyself. To Israel, to those who are paying attention, they might have thought that. Oh yeah, there was still some sacrificing going on there in the temple, but to anybody who was paying attention, they might have wondered, where is the presence of God? 
They might have wondered to themselves, how come we haven't seen God do anything great on our behalf in a while? Why does it seem like God is hiding himself from us? Is that the truth? Again, we know that during the the diaspora, this is during the time when Israel is scattered. They have no country, no land to call their own. They're just scattered all over the earth. That's commonly referred to as the diaspora, like, um, like when a mushroom releases its spores and they begin to spread, you know, all over the place. There was going to be a time, though, when they were going to gather back again, and they were going to be a nation again. We, we saw that. That happened. Here in the, in the early 1900s, at the close of World War II, we saw that happened. Israel became a land, a nation once more. It's been full of turmoil ever since. But even still, it seems like God's presence just isn't there. Why why has God allowed there to be consistent pain and struggle for Israel? Why have they not been able to wrestle control over the Temple Mount to rebuild the Temple of Jerusalem? so that they can resume their religious sacrifices. Why is that? And again, it brings us back to this fact that God has taken His attention off of them. They're still His people. He still cares for them, and He is not going to allow them to be destroyed because He still plans to use them again one day because they are going to turn their attention back to Him one day. But for now, He has turned His attention to the church. Verily thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Is God really hiding Himself here? You can't apply these words to the seeking sinner. To the sinner who wants to be saved, God has hidden Himself. Sorry, you can't find Him. No, you can't apply them in that way. From those people, God does not hide Himself. But during the last days, Israel will seek Him, and they will find Him. We move on here to verse number 18. For for thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I the Lord speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge. Let me start that, sentence, or that phrase again. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. We go back to verse number 18, and he says, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens. Again, this repetition. What's he doing? Isaiah is is just pounding it. God is pounding it into our awareness that God is the creator of all things. Then he says, He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. Something interesting here about this phrase. He who did not create it in vain. The term for vain 
uh, here, the Hebrew word for vain is the same Hebrew word that is used for void in Genesis 1-2, where it says, and the earth was without form and void. It's the same Hebrew word. And it is from this verse here in Isaiah 45 um, that... I want to make sure I get it. Verse number 18. It's from that verse that the gap theory came into existence. The gap theory um, is based on a comparison here between verse 18 and chapter 45 and Genesis 1-2 where um, they translated that the, the earth became without form and was void. Uh, and the Bible, the most natural reading of the Bible, does not say became without form and void. It says was without form and void. There's a difference there. For it to have become without form and void means that it did have form and that it was not void or empty of existence. That, that at one point there must have been something there. And so out of this is born the gap theory. It did not become... A form of void. According to the gap theory, um, there was a recreation, that there was you know, countless millennia probably between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And there's some, even King James Bibles, that may have written in the notes, um, I'm trying to think, I think it was Schofield. Uh, I think he uh, was a proponent of the gap theory. Uh, and I think he had in the notes of some of his Bibles uh, concerning that there might have been thousands of years between verse 1 and verse 2 of Genesis 1, but that there was a recreation that, that Satan had destroyed and made the first world void, empty, uh, vain, you know, is the word used in, in Isaiah here. Uh, but then, and then God had to recreate it, and then that recreation was described to us at the beginning of Genesis. Well, there are several problems with that. I'm not going to focus on all of those problems. Um, but we are told, you know, that morning and evening were the first day. Uh, on each of these accounts, there's, there's really no room for misinterpretation there because we know what a morning and an evening is. So did the writers of, of Genesis. Morning and evening were the first day. And so we know what each, that each day was a morning and an evening, or an evening and a morning, an evening and a morning, an evening and a morning, like the Jews recognize days. We do it differently than they do, but... Um, that's one, one problem with it. But the other thing that can be said here is the problem that they have with extinct fossils, old and extinct fossils in the geological record. They say that there's this big, giant, thousands and thousands of years between verses 1 and 2. But what they can't, they can't tell us is why there are all of these fossilized remains of animals buried deep within the earth and buried all, all over the earth. Because if the fall did not happen, the fall of man, which is uh, described to us in the book of Genesis, did not happen until after the seventh day, then why, where did all those animals, when did all those animals die? Because death didn't happen until Adam and Eve were created and sinned. After the first you know, seven days of creation, However many years went on before Adam and Eve uh, ate of that tree and sinned, and then death came upon all men. The curse came only after sin came. So then, what about all of these uh, fossils of animals that are supposed to be 
millions and billions of years old, according to science. You see, the gap theory was used to try to reconcile the Bible and evolutionary science. Uh, well, they wanted them both. We want the Bible, uh, but we want evolutionary science as well, and it's hard to grapple with both of them, so we stuck a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 of indefinite amounts of years, you know, however long it needed to be, that's when, you know, all of these fossils of dinosaurs and all of this stuff occurred. That's how we can say that man took, you know, millions of years to evolve, you know, during this gap that was not defined or described to us. Uh, in the Bible, we just kind of assumed that it's there. It helps to marry the two together so that they work, but they still don't work. Because again, death did not come into existence until after that, until after the first week of creation, until the curse came. And so the gap theory falls flat on its face. It's so much easier, and there's a whole lot less hoop jumping and twisting and bending uh, um, to just, just simply believe what the Bible says. Even if, even when it contradicts what the world says. Even when it contradicts what science says, even when it contradicts what archaeology says, even when it contradicts what history says. Because time and time and time and time again, the Bible has proven archaeology wrong, and it's proven history even wrong. Oh, we don't have any historical record of that. You might not yet, but you will probably one day. It turns out true. Fact check, David was real. He wasn't a fairy tale. They found, you know, his name uh, as king written on, you know, pottery over in, and they even found what they believed to be his palace over in Israel. Fact check, you know, David was a real person, even though for generations they said that it was just a fairy tale and that it wasn't historical. Turns out the Bible is historical and scientifically correct, and archaeology continues to bear that truth forward. But I continue on. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. In other words here, yes, I'm going to bring some tough, troublesome times on Israel. And yeah, it's going to seem like I've turned my back on Israel for a time. But did I tell Israel to seek me for no reason? Did I tell Israel that I am their God for no reason? It's vain. It's empty. There's no point in it. No. They're still my peculiar people. And they're always going to be my peculiar people. It's a wicked thing to think that God ever says to somebody, Seek ye me in vain. But yet some teach that even in quote-unquote Baptist churches. That there are those who have been elected or predestinated to be saved, and by those terms, which are biblical terms, what they really mean is that God handpicked or chose those people that you are going to be the ones who um, are you know, not going to be able to resist the Holy Spirit when He comes upon you, and you know, their grace is going to be irresistible, and you're just going to have to be saved. There's nothing you can do about it. There's you know, no point in resisting because you are handpicked to be saved. You, however, it doesn't matter how often you go to church or how many times you want to be saved, you're simply just not going to be... Now, they would say if, you're not ever, if you can't be saved, uh, if you weren't handpicked by God, then you won't want to be saved either. Uh, and they'll probably say something along those lines. But it's a wicked thing to think that God would ever say to somebody, seek me in vain. Go ahead and search for me, knowing full well that I'll never be found. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, and ye shall seek me and find me, 
when you shall search for me with all your heart. Hebrews 11.6 says this, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must first believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And then he says, They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of the graven image. We've seen several really good monologues here, sermons really, from Isaiah concerning the worship of false gods. It contrasts here Israel with their all-powerful God who is the creator of all things with these foolish nations and the foolish worship of those idols. Those idols need to be carried. Those idols need to be set up when in fact it's their God who's supposed to be strong enough to carry them. What about our idols from today? Our idols like greed, lust, power, influence, fame, success, wealth. You see, we have these desires and we want them to be a part of our lives. We want to be wealthy and to have success. And we want that little bit of greed that we continue to fight and search and and try to scratch some more things and stuff unto ourselves. And we think we can control those things. And so maybe we let gluttony or alcohol be a part of our lives because it's, it's something that we can control. And in all reality, it's an idol to us. All of those things are idols to us that we have to carry, that we have to bear, that we have to control and contain. But that's not what gods are supposed to be. Even ourselves. We worship ourselves. That's what humanism is. We place our intellectualism and our abilities as the highest, at the highest rung on the ladder. The, the, the thing that is the, the most praiseworthy is mankind and what he can do and his goodness, his achievements. But even then, mankind still has to be controlled and still has to be contained. Mankind does not make a very good God because a God is supposed to carry me. You see, if I give in to my lust or to my greed or to my alcohol, if I give in to my gluttony, if I give in to my desire for fame or for power, if I give in to those gods, it will control me with its, all, with its power. And there is power in those things. And it will ruin me ultimately. But if I give in to God, if I submit myself to God, then He is going to use on my behalf, He will wield on my behalf His his, his omnipotence, His power as Creator, His power as the Sustainer, but He will also wield on my behalf His love as the Good Shepherd, His guidance, And so we see how foolish it is to carry around our idols with us. Whether our idol is a hunk of metal or wood, or it's all digital, or it's ourselves. Why bother to worship man? Why bother to worship ourselves? Why bother to worship our bodies? Why bother to worship what we want and what we is going to fulfill us and make us happy. Because those are all things that we have to control, which means that they're not much of a God. 
Because a real God is beyond the bounds of my control. A real God carries me when I fall. I don't have to pick it up. He picks me up. How foolish it is. Who has declared this from ancient time? This amazing prophecy here that is given by Isaiah 210 years prior to it occurring. Who did it? A just God and a Savior. This shows the power, the wisdom, and the love of God. A just God. A just God can be a Savior, you know. When justice demands that sinners be damned to hell. If justice demands that you and I be cast into hell, into the lake of fire for an eternity because of our sin, which justice does demand that, then a just God needs to become a Savior. To pay that penalty on our behalf, to substitute Himself in there so that I don't have to pay that eternal penalty for my sin, that is a just God and a Savior who declared this from ancient times. Paul puts it like this in Romans 3.26, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Because He can be just, a perfect, holy, and just God, and at the same time, He can be the justifier the agent that comes in and brings the justification to me through Jesus Christ. Some good stuff here going on in chapter number 45. It seems similar to some of the things we've been reading, but he continues to give us some really good stuff. We'll continue next Wednesday night in verse number 22. As the message here is to look unto the Lord to find salvation. To look unto the Lord to find salvation. And so I'll we will find some good comparisons there between Israel and between us looking unto the Lord for salvation. You've been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.